Hi, I'm Trevor Cochran and this is The Garden Gurus Live, a weekly show where I'll share seasonal gardening advice, feature a variety of gardeners from all across Australia and give listeners the opportunity to interact and ask your garden questions. To join the chat live and ask your gardening questions, all you need to do is like our Facebook page and tune in every Friday at 12pm Australian Eastern Standard Time. This program is brought to you by The Garden Gurus and Scott's Performance Naturals. Scott's Performance Naturals is the 100% natural and sustainable way to grow and feed your garden. Backed by years of research and developed by scientists, the technology employed enhances natural processes, allowing extra strong growth. The Performance Naturals range contains organic materials such as Nature-N, blood and bone, seaweed, biostimulants, manure and feather meal to improve the soil and encourage microbial and earthworm activity. To find out more about the Scott's Performance Naturals range, head to lovethegarden.com.au. Welcome to The Garden Gurus Live. I'm Trevor Cochran, and we have a fantastic program for you. And we're still going to belt through it and share some amazing uh, tips and hints with some great guests. We've got prizes to give away. We'll have uh, for the five best questions. And we, and you have been posting your questions, so thank you very much for that. Um, we will we'll keep um, we'll keep uh, picking you out, and um, we'll pick the five best questions. Later this morning, I'm going to be joined by Kit Prendergast, who is a scientist whose knowledge on native bees is something that's absolutely fascinating. I can't wait to pick her brain. And uh, we've got Andrew O'Carrigan joining us as well from Love the Garden. We'll talk to him a little bit about controlling grubs and insects in your garden. But first up, we're catching up with a good mate of mine. And look, you know, he's, um, he's on the front end of the way we garden these days because you can do it all online with Garden Express and it's delivered direct to your door. Good morning, David Van Burkle. How are you? Good morning, Trevor. Yes, fabulous. Beautiful day over here. Wonderful. And uh, another day COVID-free in Victoria, which is just so good to see everything heading in the right direction. Thank goodness for that, mate. Cafes are open. can sit down and have a coffee and relax. It's good. Wonderful. That is really good. Now, David, I wanted to show you something because um, I was so excited when I walked through my garden this morning. You see those there? These gorgeous. are the beautiful dahlias that um, I bought a whole heap of them off uh, Garden Express last year. We had the most amazing um, flowering through uh, the summer months. And, of course, they all went dormant during the winter. We've had all of our spring flowering bulbs in. But, uh, of course, they've all finished. And um, they are, they're now resting. And, and my dahlias are hitting their straps. But this is the magic of of planting flowering bulbs, these magical plants that we um, we enjoy the flowers so much with, because right now is the time to be thinking about springtime, right? Absolutely. No sooner are they starting to die down that you have to, uh, you can start planning and preparing. And we've got some great deals for people who get in order early and order their uh, spring bulbs before Christmas. I was going to say, is there, because it is, the best time is to order before Christmas. You'll get your deliveries in January, um, basically as soon as the weather starts to cool. So in most parts of the country, it's going to be sort of March. You start planting out, right? Yeah, yeah. March and April. April is the perfect time to plant. But you want to be preparing your garden beds in uh, in February. And, yep. you know, if you know what you're doing and, and what bulbs that you want, you're best to get in early because not every variety is available all season, of course. Yeah. Uh, so some of the more spectacular things you want to get in early and uh, and plan for. 
So we've got a fantastic story coming up on uh, tulips in the this weekend's show, this weekend episode of The Garden Gurus. Um, it's all about the spring flowering bulbs and Bonnie does an amazing job. But just looking at them in flower at their best, it is just so inspiring and it really does motivate you to want to get them all, sort of all sorted. Have you got an incentive for people to order up early and make sure they get their bulbs? Yeah, we've got a, uh, a spring bulb pre-order uh, section going on where we've got uh, deals from saving 20 up to 50%. Um, we've got a, a beautiful set of collections. And what, what I recommend is you build on like a collection to give you a few hundred bulbs to get going, and then maybe yeah. add some more of your favourites. Uh, orders over $50, we deliver free. So it's a really good time to get in um, and, and place your order. Yeah, that's a that's a great incentive, mate. That's um that's what it's all about. Um, so just just a few little tips, maybe David, quickly with regards to planting your bulbs. You talked about soil preparation. Pretty important if you get your soil turned over early, isn't it? Absolutely. You know, when you plant your bulbs, you've got some really fresh young roots coming out. So you don't want your soil to be too rich or put your compost in too early. And bulbs really just work on nice composted soil. They don't need a heap of extra elements or fertilisers to go on them. That usually happens after flowering, but yeah. a, a nicely prepared garden bed uh, with, a, with a good bit of depth and some nice drainage really helps a bulb set itself on its way. Okay, terrific. And what are, what are your recommendations with regards to um, the most spectacular flowering bulbs that people might be ordering early? Look, I mean, you can't go past tulips. To me, tulips, you know, maybe with my Dutch heritage, I really love them, but yep. tulips just put on that spectacular display. But you've got to go in a little bit heavy with the bulbs. You know, a lot of people put four or five in and you really need to clump a nice display of tulips. So something from a dozen bulbs or more. Daffodils, yep. of course, you know, they sort of herald the start of spring. So daffodils are just, you know, they're golden, fresh colour and so yep. many varieties in daffodils as well. And if you want a little bit of fragrance in your garden, you can't beat a hyacinth, Trev. You know yeah. all about them. They're just gorgeous. They certainly are. Well, mate, I will be getting my order in with you. I uh, Obviously, you can see how happy I am with my summer flowering um, bulbs. Dahlias are just superb. And these are the very first flowers. So I've, I've got a lot coming through. I'm pretty excited about it, to be quite honest. It's, um, it's really they're just such a perfect flower as far as the actual structure goes and they just bring this colour into, you know, a hot, dry garden in summertime in the west. Nothing looks better than a, one of those gardens with lush green dahlias all in flower. They're, they're incredibly hardy, aren't they? I mean, a little, they need a little bit of water, but um, the number of blooms that you get off a bush, the size of the bush, so value for money, I think, in all of the bulbs would have to be the dahlias. So um, good to see that you've got some good ones early. Yeah, thanks, mate. I'm excited about that. That's um, that's the magic about bulbs, of course. They're, they're the gift that keeps on giving as well. So if people are thinking about gifts for Christmas time, maybe actually the pre-order of uh, some flowering bulbs uh, or a gift certificate with uh, Garden Express might be a good way to go. We definitely have gift certificates as well. So, yeah, order, uh, order all of this online at gardenexpress.com.au. Thanks, David. Have a great weekend. Thanks for joining us this morning. Will do. Cheers, mate. Thank you. No worries. Now, folks, make sure you keep your questions coming in because we will answer them. We're going to um, just keep moving through our guests this morning because they've been very patient just as you have and they've been um, quietly uh, waiting for us to get everything working, which it is now. And I've got Andrew O'Carrigan joining us. Now, Andrew, you're the technical officer at Evergreen Garden Care, aren't you? 
G'day, Trevor. Yes, uh, technical officer is my, my title, and I work with Evergreen, which has the brands of Scotts and Lawn Builder as their key products behind them. Um, yeah, so, trust yeah. the brands, but you know, nobody nobody seems brand. to know know gardens better than you guys when it comes to the challenges people experience. Um, you've kind of just about fixed all the problems along the way um, by helping at a professional level and then taking that professional product, making it available to consumers in you know, the average backyard, which is absolutely sensational. Tell me, um, right at the moment, we in the West have just had an outbreak of a new type of lawn armyworm. Um, lawn wow. armyworm and African black beetle, they start to do some pretty significant damage to, uh, to, to lawns right about now, don't they? Yeah, look, uh, if you're, uh, say you're in like a nice um, pocket of Perth and you're getting plenty of rain, which you are, yep. and you're getting those cooler temperatures at night with the warm days, it's opportune time for lawn armyworm. So we've seen an outbreak in around... Um, late August, early September in uh, Lower Queensland, and yes. that was rep, you know replicated by the same conditions. And the product that we have in our market for that is lawn builder grub and insects. So you really need to get ahead of the pests if possible. But if you do have an outbreak, um, it's still worthy to put a product like this down because you will get some residual effect and you will get some green up as well from the fertilizers. So lawn armyworm is one that. Um, we know that as the seasons progress, particularly in WA, you will get uh, other insects. If you've got cooch lawn, you might get cooch mite. Um, yeah. You can get Argentine stem weevil and the scarabs as well, which uh, are quite prominent from September right through to February. Yeah, well, yeah. I know a lot of our friends um, who follow the Facebook page and certainly, um, you know, as the TV show runs nationally, we get a lot of people, particularly out of Queensland, it's always the first indicator of what kind of year we're going to have with regards to, to law and army worm. And just for those people who may not be aware of this, um, tell us a little bit about what lawn armyworm is and the kind of damage that it does. Because there might be some people who are sitting at home thinking, my sprinkler's just not reaching a little patch at the moment on the lawn, but it, it yeah. may not be that at all, right? Yes, uh, good one, Trevor. So we've got a bunch of different classifications for insects and the simple way of describing them is you've got piercing, sucking or chewing. And when you think of armyworm, it's a caterpillar and you're thinking about a chewing insect. So it has a number of life cycles um, and think about that in relation to other chewing insects like the beetles yeah. and sucking insects like thrips or mites. Um, so you really need to learn about when they are uh, in their early stages of development. So if you look at lawn armyworm, um, there is a moth that will come in and will lay an egg and then it has to go through and hatch. And then you generally don't see this armyworm at night. It's when you're out there in the evening and you've got your floodlights on your lawn and you've got nice, a nice moisture blanket over there that you'll see this um, armyworm crawling around. So there's techniques such as laying a, a blanket over your lawn or hessian, hessian yeah. mat and you can get these lawn armyworms populating underneath that. And if you pick it up in the morning, voila, they're all there. So you can actually harvest them off and remove them culturally. Yeah. Um, if you've got a really large lawn and you don't have the pleasure of getting out there and using your boot, yep. uh, a product like lawn grub an insect, lawn builder grub an insect, has the active in there, which will help target a variety of um, chewing, sap-sucking, 
um, burrowing insects and yep. you know things like ants and stuff. It will actually uh, ward off the the ant issue as well. Right. So, yeah. just, uh, as far as applying it, so with lawn builder, it's one of those great fertilizers. It's one that I continually recommend, and there's several different reasons. It, living in a place with a very sandy base as Perth has, we get a lot of leaching of nutrients yeah. through the soil. And back in the 60s, mm. people used to apply superphosphates and urea, and mm. uh, the lawn would turn bright green for two weeks. Um, they'd be mowing like crazy, and then it would have a crash where the fertilizer caused the, um, yeah. the plant literally to go the other other extreme, and then the cycle would occur all over again. So people were basically fertilizing every month using this fast action. Lawn Builder doesn't do that. It, it releases nice and slowly mm. and steadily, allowing the lawn to take up the majority of the nutrient, where in the past about 90% of the nutrient actually went beyond the roots and ended up in the water table polluting waterways. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I think you've explained it so so wonderfully. The the benefit of uh, Lawn Builder is the technology being either a coated. Um, so in the instance of Lawn Builder Grub and Insect, we have coated products. So they yeah. are timed to release um, through the action of moisture absorption and, and temperature. So as the temperature increases, more water comes on, the product pushes out more nutrient. Yeah. And then we have the microbially driven products. So they're slow release. Slow release goes on the lawn, um, it'll get activated by the microbes through water and as the temperature rises, microbe activity increases and as you're feeding microbes a wonderful food source such as nitrogen, they'll start to break that down. So you tend to get uh, a variation in longevity as you progress in temperature. So the, yep. the higher the temperatures, the shorter the uh, pattern of release. So we'll find that if you put it out um, for this particular product, which is grub and insect, you should see longevity up to around 10 to 12 weeks. And right. that's, um, that's a fabulous thing for avoiding that heavy dump and the leaching effects that you get on sandy soils. That's fantastic. Yeah. And as you mentioned, um, yeah, no, no superphosphate in this particular product, which is a vital thing for WA. We, we don't generally need a lot of P to um, establish lawns, phosphorus. Yep. So when you uh, look at a lot of lawn builder products, there's minimal phosphorus in the analysis and that, that's perfect because we want more nitrogen, a uh, little bit of potassium and some of the trace elements to, to kick the green on, which is like iron and um, magnesium, et cetera. Which is exactly yeah. why the professional industry, you know, green keepers and, and parks and gardens yes. rely on lawn builder um, as a product, it's fantastic, mate. Look, thanks so much for joining yeah. us this morning. That is yeah. a that, that is a really good suggestion. If people have got some problems with uh, with that lawn builder, um, is one is a great product, obviously to to use generally. But uh, the mm. fact that you've actually got some um, some ability to control some of these lawn pests through those uh, mm. specialised products is is pretty special, mate. Thanks for joining Thank us. You. Have a great weekend. Thanks so much for the offer. And um, to all your uh, willing viewers out there, I hope your gardening is bright and green across the summer months. Fingers Thank crossed, you. mate. Thanks very much. I really appreciate <laughs> that. Visit the Garden Guru's online store and browse through a collection of high-quality, German-made wolf garden tools. You'll also find a range of books with information to help create and maintain a beautiful garden. You can also access the online store on the Garden Guru's Facebook page. Use the code GURUS for free shipping on orders over $30. Offer ends 31st of October. We, um, 
We've had a bit of a strange old morning this morning. It's a strange old year, really, isn't it? Um, but we are getting through some great, um, some great interviews. And, and Andrew is a classic example of somebody who's incredibly passionate about what he does. And uh, if you know anything about Evergreen and uh, Lawn Builder and Osmocote and the products that, that they supply the market, you'll know that it's always a trusted, reliable product that's going to do the world of good for you. So you can, you can trust those. We, um, we often talk about the importance of plants with bees. And uh, there's, there's been a very strong push in, in recent years for people to become more aware of honeybees and the, the great work they do in pollinating across gardens. Uh, it's an important thing because across the world, bee populations have been impacted quite badly by uh, a disease and a pest. And we are still learning about uh, those kinds of things, but we're very fortunate to live on a giant island, as we, as we well know. Um, which keeps us isolated from some of those pests being introduced. So when it's come to, to talking about bees, there's been a bit of an evolution in our thinking and uh, there's some very clever people out there who recognise that we don't just have these, these foreign bees, those honeybees that we all rely about. They're actually an imported bee. Um, they've, they've come from Europe and uh, to some extent there's... Um, you know, being an import, there's maybe some negatives attached to that because there's a whole bunch of beautiful native bees. And uh, to talk about them, we've invited Kit Prendergast in this morning. Kit, you're a scientist that's been working with native bees for a period of time. They're very important to our whole, um, the whole ecology in our gardens and, and in, in our broader environment, aren't they? Yeah, so native bees in Australia, we've actually got about 2,000 species and some of them are generalists so they will visit a wide range of plants including some of our exotic plants and yeah. then we've got some specialist bees and they've got specialised co-evolutionary relationships with our native flora and Australia has been a continent that's been isolated for millions of years and our, our native wildflowers, they have co-evolved with our native bees. And so they're very important for our wildflowers, which are a key part of our landscapes. And, you know, pre-COVID times were a key draw card to um, the tourism industry. Yeah. And certainly, you know, whilst tourism from overseas is not uh, quite what it was, um, it internally tourism has, has gone gangbusters right across the country and we're all getting out and exploring our environment and appreciating it a little bit more. So the understanding of the role that these bees play is actually very important. So the work you're doing to educate us and to share your passion is um, is pretty special. I'm, I'm really thrilled to have you with us. Tell me, what, what do, uh, I, I'd imagine it's widely... Um, ranging in their look but what do, what do native bees look like they don't look like um the european honeybees do they no so in fact the majority of our bees look very very different from the european honeybee and unfortunately everyone's idea of what a bee looks like is based on the european honeybee you know some fuzzy yellow yellow and black insect but yep. Um, the majority of our bees, actually, um, they're not even hairy. So the most species-rich group of bees, the Uriglossinae and the Hylaeinae, they, during their evolution, they've evolved to swallow the pollen rather than carry it 
on hairs on their bodies. And yeah. in evolution, if you don't use something, um, it tends to um, be lost evolutionary. So if we think of, you know, blind cave fish, the same thing happens here with the bees. So they're yeah. not hairy. And then um, our native bees range in size from one of the smallest bees in the whole entire world. It's just over two millimetres long, so absolutely tiny, wow. like the length of a honeybee leg. But then yeah. we have some really big ones as well, the Xylocopacoptotozoma. Those are um, giant you say that one more time? Sorry? Could you say that one more time? <laughs> the the Xylocopacoptotozoma. <laughs> That's beautiful. Tell us about that bee. It's a giant so, bee. Yeah, they're giant carpenter bees and Xylocopa coptortozoma, that's the, Xylocopa is the genus, coptortozoma is the subgenus and there are a couple of species in this subgenus and wow. they they burrow in trees and I had the, the pleasure of um, seeing some when I went to Stradbroke Island to do some research and they really are quite special. I love them. And then we've also got um, some other really big bees, the Amigul. Amygilla dorsoni. Um, Amygilla is the genus, dorsoni is yeah. the species name. And this bee is very special to me. I went up and studied it in Carnarvon last year to help a bee researcher from, from Arizona. And these bees, they've been wow. even featured on a David Attenborough documentary. Um, wow. They've got really fascinating behaviors. Um, they've got like big males that wait for the females to emerge um, on the clay pans and they're they battle it out to be the first male to to get to mate with her. So there's like yeah. brawls on the clay pans, and they can, um, yeah, they can fight to the death. Um, and then yeah. there's like little males, and they know that they can't win these battles, so they're sneaky and they go and wait on the flowers, waiting for the females to come and, and visit the flowers to mate with her. So they're wow. they're really cool. This is this is a fascinating area. Now bees. That when we think about uh, the the I suppose the knowledge we have with bees is that they live in hives, but that's not necessarily the case with Australian native bees. They don't have mm, hives, yeah. much, do they? No, the majority of them don't live in hives. They're not colonial. They're actually solitary or semi-social. So they make their the females make their own nests, and every yeah. female can reproduce, which is the the different situation with the honeybees, where you've got the queen and her yeah. daughters that can't reproduce, and they do all the work. Um, we do have 11 species that live in hives in colonies, the mm -hmm. Tetragonula and the Ostroplebia. But then, again, they're very different from honeybees because they actually can't sting, which is wonderful. Yeah. Right. Do, do, Australian, do Australian native bees sting? So those 11 species don't, but the rest of them can, um, but only mm -hmm. the females. So male bees can't sting. And right. um, then the... The females, even though they can sting, they're a lot more docile. So they don't, because they don't live in colonies, they don't have a colony to defend. So they're yes. quite happy to, to let you come in and watch them and, um, they yeah, they're not aggressive. Okay. So tell me, um, one, I suppose there's, uh, when, when we talk about, you know, um, introduced species, the European honeybee, is that a threat to some of the native species? Yeah, it can be. So it's a topic that I've been both researching myself as well as writing a review, so looking at all the evidence that's out there. Um, mm -hmm. And it's not a 
almost like everything in ecology. It's not a black and white issue. So competition will only occur if resources are limiting. So when there's not enough flowers available in, in the landscape. And yeah. when we talk about flowers, it's not just all flowers because, as I mentioned before, our native bees are very specialised. So it's when there's not enough native flowers and when there's too many honeybees in the landscape um, and then they outcompete the native bees for right. these, these food resources. But then this is like honeybees in general. But when it comes to feral honeybees, that's also another big problem because they compete with the native bees, they compete with the domestic bees, and they also take over hollows that our native possums and our native parrots need to nest in. Right. So there uh, they are a problem. So tell me, um, if we want to encourage more native bees into our gardens, could you give us share? A, we've got a we've got a national audience. People are tuning in at the moment from everywhere, from Queensland down to Tasmania. So if people want to bring uh, or create an environment that's uh, better for for native bees, planting obviously native plants has got to be one of the good things to do. Is there anything you can do to encourage them into your garden? beyond that yeah yeah so then the native plants is is very important especially the the best ones the metaceae so these are eucalypts calistamines commonly known as bottle brushes um the thryptamine and uh another good one is carimbia so they're they're all really good ones and many of our our native bees have specialized um with these plants it's the dominant plant um, group in Australia, so it makes sense for them to to specialise on that. Um, and then when it comes to, we need to not only think about what the bees need for food resources, but also somewhere to nest. Yeah. And we've got the the cavity nesting bees and then the ground nesting bees. So with the cavity nesting bees, they nest in nature in little holes in wood created by wood boring beetles. So yeah. the important thing here is to retain trees. Um, that's the best thing that you can do. Um, but yep. you can also help them out with bee hotels. And I've actually written a book on bee hotels on how to make them because they're actually really fun and easy to make, but yep. you need to make sure the dimensions are correct. Um, and that's where some of the, the bigger stores like Bunnings um, and Aldi are not doing the right thing. Um, so much better to make your own also because you don't know whether they've used treated wood which could be an issue. So that's the bee yeah. hotels. And then we've got the ground nesting bees. So they nest in the ground. Um, so when it comes to that, of course, uh, they can't nest in pavement. Um, so making sure that you've got bare, bare ground, bare soil, um, mm -hmm. and um, no fake grass, which is very bad for bees, but yes. also for, for the garden as a whole. Um, yep. So no fake grass. Yep. <laughs> and... Um, I know, so, like, mulching is good, but not... I was going to say, can I ask you about mulching? Yeah. Because so, that's, that's something we encourage people to do in gardens, but I know in a lot of cases bees, they, they like um, a, a nice sandy base or sometimes like a little bit of a clay pan kind of finish on the surface so they can burrow in under, isn't it? That's an important thing for them. Yeah, yeah. So I know mulching is good to, um, for gardens to, like, um, reduce like be, be water conservative, but if you can just leave a, a, some 
patches of bare ground, that would be great because it's very hard for the, the native bees to try and burrow through through mulch. They don't seem to, to like that that much. And especially if also fertilizers, like if you've got to put down a heap of, you know, um, sheep poo or something like that, yeah. <laughs> it's not really that great for bees. No. So, Kit, if people want to learn more about native bees, you mentioned before you you put a book together. How do people learn more? Can they contact you? Is there some resources that can help us expand our knowledge? Yeah, so I've got this book called Creating a Haven for Native Bees, and Mm -hmm. it's available as a physical copy as well as online and you can Mm -hmm. get that by contacting me at kitprendergast21 at gmail.com. I also have a group on Facebook called Bees in the Burbs and um, it's it's a thriving community of um, people that are interested in native bees. People share photos. I can ID the photos for you. Um, I share information, um, any resources I have. Um, I've got a couple of like um, recordings of some YouTube presentations I've done. Um, and there's a whole heap of resources on there, some albums of the different um, bee groups so you can learn about them and um, some some information sheets and I share any of my, my publications, my scientific publications on there as well, as well as what, what else is going out there in the, the bee science world. So if you're, you're interested, then, um, yeah, that's, that's the way to do it. Be. We will stick your, we'll stick all that information up on our Facebook page and share it with all of our friends. You're amazing. Thank you so much for spending some time with us and sharing your passion and knowledge, incredible knowledge of native bees. I really appreciate you joining us. Hopefully I can get you on the Garden Guru sometime soon. Yeah, that would be amazing. Um, thanks for having me. And yeah, gardeners obviously are so important for native bee conservation and you know, the, the way that you manage your garden can make a huge difference. So, yeah, yeah. thanks. Thank you so much. Have a great weekend and keep those, keep all that research going on, uh, native bees. They are very, very important. Garden Express are Australia's leading mail-order gardening service, offering a wide range of quality garden products. Each week on the Garden Gurus Live, the team at Garden Express will share a weekly offer. So make sure after today's show, you jump online and visit their website. That's all of our interviews this morning. Thanks, Kit. But we have all of your garden questions and you've been sending them through like crazy this morning. And um, I am going to work my way through them now to try and help out. Uh, And just when you send them, if you could please remember to let us know where you're from because sometimes the, the, the location will actually affect what the answer is. Natalie um, from Sydney, New South Wales, has joined us this morning and given us a great question. How can I fix a fungus issue on your Hoya? And it's black and dark spots on all the new growth and uh, some of the new growth is dropping off. It could be, and it sounds to me like it's probably scale insect. Now, Hoyas do get hit with, uh, with a large brown or black scale and um, it will cause patches on the leaves and it will cause those damaged leaves to fall off. Um, Pretty common at the moment too because uh, the the young uh, nymphs or larvae of the the scale are on the move and uh, they'll move to the new foliage because that's where all the, the, the good sap is and they're sucking that out. Now, the best way to get rid of them is to actually to, to literally smother them. So it's using a horticultural oil. Um, and there's a whole bunch of different types out there. In the old days, we used to call use something called white oil. 
and you still use it occasionally to gloss up the leaves of your plants. And that is probably what I would be going for. I hope that helps, Natalie. Um, but the best way to do it is to treat that scale because I'm sure that that's a problem you've got. Denise from Hunter Valley in New South Wales is staying in New South Wales at the moment. Um, she's got half a dozen pieces of dragon fruit plants. What's the best soil to plant them in? Premium soil or a succulent cactus mix? The answer is a succulent cactus mix. They are a type of cactus and uh, they do like that sort of free draining um, mix. But to be quite honest, I've seen them growing in, in heavy clay in places like uh, Vietnam uh, where there's huge amounts of rain. Uh, they, they just don't stop growing. They're really really beautiful plant and the best way to grow them is to actually plant is to put a, a permapine pole into the ground uh, ideally around about six foot in height maybe a couple of little struts coming off the top in opposite directions plant your cutting at the bottom encourage it to grow straight up the pole and then when it gets to the top break the the growth tip off and it'll encourage it to branch out and then they weep down and of course as they get their beautiful big pink fruit on them in the sort of latter part of summer They'll all hang down at the right level. It looks spectacular because you've got this beautiful weeping plant, but most importantly, it's also easy to pick. So I hope that helps, Denise. Now, um, we're going to southwest Tasmania, which is fantastic, beautiful part of the world. Hello, Lee. You fertilised your roses that you planted back in July. You've added blood and bone. The flowers are coming through. What else should you be doing and when else should I use it? Lee, I would really caution you with regards to feeding um, those roses too much just at this moment in time. A lot of the blood and bones that are sold in the marketplace have a very high level of urea in them. Um, it's kind of cheating and it's not the ideal scenario. Um, if you can get pure blood and bone, you are just going to get this beneficial um, soil microbial activity and it's an, a bit of a natural feed. But what I would suggest to you is that you... Um, look at a controlled release fertilizer for the first year and allow them to really get their root system down and spread right across uh, the surface of the soil. They tend to be quite shallow rooted. Um, second year, you can go into a normal rose feeding fertilizer regime. So you'd be feeding them quite regularly, to be quite honest, to get the very best results. But right at the moment, be very cautious. If you're going to use anything, use a controlled release designed for flowering plants or, or ideally for roses. Diane uh, from Sydney, we're back in Sydney. We're getting a lot from Sydney this morning. Uh, she's about to create a small balcony garden. Any suggestions of where to start planning? Well, the first place I would start planning is in at my local garden centre. I'd be having a look at the pots that they've got. I'd be having a look at some of the plants. And I'd be thinking about what types of plants you want to put in. Um, some of the best plants you'll find for large tubs on a balcony are things like oranges, which produce obviously fruit. They look fantastic. They're lovely dark green foliage. They grow really well in pots, uh, but you could be putting mandarins in. You could be growing vegetables or herbs in around the base of that. Or if you're in a shaded spot, so you just don't get any natural sunlight coming through on that balcony, you, you could be looking to go towards some of those indoor plants and things like ferns. So I hope that that's a little, little bit of a help there, Diane. Um, heading up north to, to Cairns, Trina, what tropical plants could I plant around my mature golden cane? Mostly, uh, it's mostly getting sun. Now, um, I, Trina, was reminded recently of the beauty of the tropics. I visited Christmas Island to do some stories for a series we produce and um, absolutely blown away by the beauty of the acalifers. 
Now, they're sometimes known as fire plants, and there's a whole bunch of different colors and varieties, and some of them, the hispidiform um, has beautiful long uh, raceme flowers, or bracts they are, or not bracts, they're, they're racemes hanging down um, of bright red um, or even burgundy in color. And they would do beautifully in around the base of golden cane palms. So they're called a caliphas. And uh, as I said, there's a whole bunch of different varieties. Keep your eye out for them. Probably in this situation, I'd be looking for some of the more dwarf forms of them. And the best place to find them is in at your local garden centre. So stick your head in there. Bernard uh, from Victoria. Hello, Bernard. Uh, you've got a sago palm tree. It's got some white dots underneath the leaves. Now, the sago palm is also uh, known uh, as the, the Japanese um, sago. It's actually not a palm, but it's actually a cycad. So it's a beautiful cycad known as Cycus revoluta. And uh, those little spots underneath the leaves are highly likely to be white scale. You are absolutely right. And some of the leaves are turning yellow. Now, just to put into context what's going on here, that scales are underneath the leaf and it's sucking all the goodness out of the leaf. And that's why your leaves will start turning yellow because once you get big populations of scale, you really do have a, a serious problem. The, um, the solution is twofold. So one is you need to be aware that there's a biological reason this is occurring. So scale is generally farmed. It's moved around... Uh, doesn't have the ability to fly or do anything like that. It's moved around generally by ants that farm it. And in return, in this symbiotic relationship, the scale provides the, um, provides the ants with a source of food. And uh, that's exactly what's going on here. So you kind of need to stop the ants and you need to treat the scale that's there. The treating of the scale is done, again, using a horticultural oil. So, uh, And you actually have to spray it up underneath the leaves. There's no point in spraying it over the top because uh, they're all underneath and they're protected. So you need to get your sprayer, turn it upside down, the wand upside down so the spray nozzle's up and you spray up and down the, the length of the leaf. The leaves that are turned yellow need to be uh, removed. There's nothing you can do about them. And the ants, well, they can be stopped by getting talcum powder and putting it in a circle, creating a barrier around the base of the plant itself. I hope that helps, Bernard. That's... Um, it's a big problem with uh, with the sagos, with the, the Japanese um, Cycus revoluta. Now, we're going to stay in Victoria. We've got Carol from the Macedon Ranges, one of the most beautiful places on the planet, I think. She's got a 20-year-old flowering peach. It's 15 foot tall and it needs rejuvenating. The leaves only grow on this year's wood. When should you prune and how much? Um, so when you're dealing with a, a very old peach, pruning them hard in the winter can be um, fraught with danger. Uh, generally, in the old days, we would have actually pruned um, generally peaches broadly during the winter months. But in actual fact, we know now that it's probably better to prune small amounts to tackle maybe 25% of the, the limbs on the tree now and then probably again in February, another 25%. And then in winter, maybe another 25%. And then what you're doing is you're reducing the old wood, encouraging new wood to grow in certain sections. But don't, don't just do a quarter of the tree. Try and just take the odd branch out here and there. And then that'll stimulate more growth coming from those areas where you've made those cuts. One of the things with old trees and very important thing to do is to make sure that you're applying a seaweed extract, so sea sole soaked in around the base of the root system will do it the world of good. 
let's uh, I hope that helps Carol that's um that it's a lovely old tree the flowering peach so um you don't want to uh, to see it go Cherie is in Melbourne it's lovely to have you with us Cherie we've got a few hot days uh, appearing now and um you've got brown patches starting to appear everywhere in the lawn now those brown patches may relate to what we talked about earlier on and and that is that issue with uh with things like lawn armyworm, which will be appearing in Victoria, uh, but also African black beetle is also one that can also do that kind of damage. What I would do is something that was suggested, and that's to lay uh, some hessian or an old towel, uh, wet the lawn down, lay that hessian down over the lawn, do it all at about 5.30, 6 o'clock as, as the light's starting to set. And then I would come back just after it has gone completely dark with a torch and I'd lift that towel up. And if you can find grubs under there, you need to be treating it with that very special lawn builder uh, product that is designed to treat uh, grubs and, and lawn armyworm, which uh, really do a lot of damage just at this time of the year. If it is, uh, if, if it is patches caused by a lack of water and certainly whilst you're seeing it getting hot, um, that can be an insect as well because uh, the damage shows up a lot worse when those grubs have been eating the roots. What I would do is I would get some wetting agent regardless and I would soak the soil with wetting agent and uh, that will ensure water, the water that's being put down is getting to the lawn. But um, sowing new seed at the moment is probably not much good, I'm afraid. It won't handle the hot, dry conditions. So this couple of things you need to do there and uh, the only thing I would say is after you've applied your wedding agent I would make sure you give your lawn a good feed that won't hurt this program is brought to you by the garden gurus and Scott's performance naturals Scott's performance naturals is the 100% natural and sustainable way to grow and feed your garden Backed by years of research and developed by scientists, the technology employed enhances natural processes, allowing extra strong growth. The Performance Naturals range contains organic materials such as Nature-N, blood and bone, seaweed, biostimulants, manure and feather meal to improve the soil and encourage microbial and earthworm activity. To find out more about the Scott's Performance Naturals range, head to lovethegarden.com.au. So let's go up to Brisbane and say hello to Suzette. And uh, thanks so much for your patience, everybody, uh, this morning with our technical issues. It's great to be answering your questions. Um, Suzette's problem is a potted lemon that's lost all of its leaves and fruit. Now, the, the trunk's firm, the soil's rich and full of worms. How can you save it? It needs a feed, Suzette. Um, Citrus are what we call gross feeders. They do feed a lot on a regular basis, and particularly when they're contained. If it's in a pot, you're going to find that um, once it sucks up its nutrient uh, and uses it, the nutrient levels get less and less and less. And what happens is the tree gets less and less foliage. It literally sheds foliage as it can't support it with the right nutrients. So what you def definitely have to make sure you do is increase the fertilizer to it. I would give it a really good soak at the moment with some sea salt, and then I would apply a controlled release fertilizer, something like the Osmocote for citrus. I, it's a great product and it'll do the world of good. Wouldn't hurt to give it a liquid feed at the moment as well. Uh, I hope that helps you. Lindy in Brisbane, lots of questions coming out of Queensland at the moment, which is great. Uh, thank you very much for your support and for participating. Um, Lindy's question, she's got tomatoes and capsicums. They've been infested with fruit fly. Now, you've sprayed them, but they're still laying their eggs, which you don't notice until you pick the fruit, and that's a disaster. 
What I would do is I would get those yellow, yellow sticky traps. I'm using them extensively in all of my fruit trees at the moment, and we are getting masses of fruit fly stuck to them. They'll fly to the yellow sticky trap and stick to it before they'll go to, to the fruit and, and sting it. So get uh, a whole heap of them. These days, uh, I've noticed they're only now selling them with a little cage that protects uh, other animals like uh, lizards and, and also birds from getting stuck to it. So that's great. It just means only the insects get stuck and that does allow you to control this problem a lot better without having to use a chemical. You can also go sticking some of those baits in. That's a, Usually it's a something that's either got a active uh, pheromone in it or alternatively it's using uh, something like Vegemite, which um, will attract the fruit fly there and they'll get inside and they fall in and they drown. That's... Um, that's a great question. So thank you very much, Lindy. We're still flowing through. We're getting everybody telling us where you're from, which is great. Ari in Perth. Hello, Ari. It's a beautiful day here in Perth today. It's absolutely gorgeous. You've got Chinese and Japanese wisterias. They haven't flowered yet, but they seem to be growing nicely with green leaves. Is there anything you should do? Uh, Ari, probably the thing to do is to make sure you try and stop them from getting watered at the end of summer. If you back the water right off at the end of summer, let them grow and be lush now, uh, probably prune them in late summer. And then as we move into the autumn, and it's still generally dry in autumn in Perth, what I would do is I would make sure that um, you're in a situation where you are uh, letting the soil dry out, where you're stressing the plant, because what you've got is you've got some very happy plants. They don't need to be reproducing, which is the whole purpose of them producing flowers. So they're quite happy to put all their energy into growth at the moment. But if you stress them at the end of winter, they think to themselves, we better produce a lot of flower because we need to reproduce. It's mother nature at her finest. And that'll stimulate uh, a lot of flowering uh, come next spring. But I don't think you're going to get any more uh, at the moment. The Chinese wisterias do flower spasmodically through the summer months. But uh, generally, it's fertiliser and water. If they're, if they're comfortable and happy, most plants are like this. They won't necessarily produce all the flower you're looking for. Natalie in Sydney. Hello, Natalie. Um, you've got a, a semi-dwarf nectarine tree that you planted last spring. This year, the fruit has shriveled and dropped off. What could be the problem? Uh, and it's planted in a large pot. Well, it could be one of two things. It could be uh, an environmental issue. So there could have been some dry stress going on. And if there's been some, some drying out in the pot, what you will find has happened is the plant will stress, it'll drop its fruit first, and it'll worry about keeping a cover of foliage. And the reason it wants the foliage is because that'll produce energy and keeps the plant going. The other problem that could be occurring, and uh, sometimes this happens, is if you get uh, one of those uh, bacterial diseases that occur uh, and peach leaf curl is the most common form of that, which you will see on nectarines as well. If you're getting that particular problem occurring and, um, and uh, you'll see sort of like this buckling of the leaves, so this red blotchy buckling of the leaves, that will also cause the, the, the tree to drop its fruit. And the, the key here is to make sure that, um, that you treat that. But you can't treat it now. You'll have to wait until you get into winter next year and give it a copper spray. So there's a spray called Coside and you would probably spray it twice during the winter months. Now, questions keep flowing through and we've got a few photos being sent through. So if you've got yourself a bit of a difficult, um, you know, a bit of a difficult issue, um, then look at 
uh, sending us a photo, something uh, to help us along. This first question is from Jennifer from Curram Downs in Victoria. Now, she's got an acacia waterfall. It's absolutely beautiful. We'll show you a picture of this. It's an amazing plant. Um, she's not quite happy with how it's growing. But I'm looking at the plant, the picture here, and you can see it now on the screen. And to me, it's looking pretty good. If you were wanting it to branch out even more, this is basically where you would prune it halfway up uh, the stem. So, you know, literally cutting half of that beautiful cascading foliage and it'll encourage it to send out some more growth and encourage it to become broader and wider. And I think that's all we're talking about you needing to do here. It's not a, a significant problem. Another question that's come through, I'm not quite sure where you're from, Tonya, but the problem would apply to pretty much everybody at the moment anyway. So I'll share this and you can have a look at this photo. This is Tonya's passion fruit vine. It's a two-year-old. It's north-facing. It's the variety of sweet cheeks, which is a beautiful, sweet um, passion fruit. Uh, it's in full sun. It's got good drainage. But since the early winter, all the new growth has curled and become more of a bush. And there's no sign of insects on the plant. But when you take a look at that leaf curling that's occurring, and, and I'm looking at your photo and I'm going, this is probably, uh, in my mind, one of two issues. And it could be both of them. The first issue, and this is something that we should all be careful of, never, ever grow cucubits or watermelon or pumpkin of that sort of th those types of plants anywhere near a passion fruit vine. The reason is they get something called cucumber mosaic virus. And cucumber mosaic virus stunts the growth of passion fruit. And it's transferred from one to another generally by aphids. And the first sign you'll get is stunting of the plant's growth and you'll get curling. And the thing with viruses is there is no cure for them in plants. So um, once it really takes a hold, it can be quite problematic. The second thing is that this can also be caused by a um, deficiency uh, of certain trace elements. In fact, uh, there's probably two major ones, but the real message here is that passion fruit require trace element additions every once in a while. And at two years, I would be recommending you give this a really good feed, okay? It still looks lush and green and healthy, and a good feed with warm weather will encourage it to grow out and hopefully grow away from that, that virus and get on top of it if that's what it is. And of course, if it's lacking trace elements and you apply trace elements now, all the new growth will be fine. I don't think it's the end of the world. Passion fruit generally five to seven years maximum. So you're really at, at the best stage of this plant's life. It should grow out. It should be as strong as it possibly can be. It doesn't seem to have any obvious deficiencies uh, as in discoloration in the foliage. It looks to me like it's one of those sort of core elements that might need to be boosted a bit. Give it a feed. That's the best thing you can do. Ian has sent us through. He's got a question regarding the position of his rose garden. He wants to put the garden at the front of the house, in front of a bay window. He sent us a photo so we can have a look. And um, he thinks, he's, I'm thinking of building a raised bed for the roses. They get sunlight in summer from 10 a.m. to sunset. Is this a good spot for them or should you rethink about where to plant them? The answer is absolutely. This is a great spot for them, mate. Um, really good example of a, of a good location to put roses. And of course, they're right next to the window so you can appreciate the flowers as well. As far as putting in raised beds, I don't think you need to raise the beds personally unless your soil is really poor quality and you want to lift the, the soil level up and plant into some enriched compost. 
I think that that spot's fantastic, mate. I don't think you need to do anything at all. Now, we've got our final two live questions and then I'm going to cut to a plant of the week that I just wanted to show you, a fruit that I bought in that's just sensational. Our final two questions are from two of our great friends, Ken here in Perth. He's been following uh, following us for a while and making some great contributions and I really appreciate everybody's patience today as we worked through our little challenges earlier on. Ken, I desperately need to know if it's okay for me to prune my longan branches which are not bearing fruit. The tree is getting very wide and tall and once a longan tree starts to uh, to really grow, they really take off and pruning branches is a good idea. Don't be scared to, to shape your tree. I'd be taking the height out and encouraging it to spread I'd probably go through and thin out some of those branches inside the tree as well. It'll encourage nice new growth, which will produce more flower next year when it's due to, to go in. But it will encourage the tree to spread nice. And you could probably take anything up to, say, 40% of the, of the branches out of this tree if you want, including those ones that are getting a bit too lanky. And the other great friend we have, I hope that helps Kang. I, I really think that that's the solution for you. Other great friend we have joining us today is Tala from the Central Tablelands in New South Wales. Tala, thanks for joining us. Um, what's a good native flowering plant for a fence hedge line, I think is what you're asking. And the answer to that in New South Wales, without a doubt, is the lily pilly. Now, you don't want the big lily pilly tree unless you've got lots of room. Um, what you want is one of those dwarf compact forms, and there's a whole bunch of them. Uh, available these days, all under a bunch of different names. My favourite to this day still remains one called Bush Christmas. It's just a wonderful hedging plant. It looks fantastic, but you can also let it grow informally. So that's um, that's one way to go. So I hope we've answered the majority of your questions. If you've got more questions, don't hesitate to post them. We will take a look at uh, coming back to you in the future. We'll use them at the beginning of next week's show. And we will make sure that we um, we get back to you if you're posting them on our Facebook page anyway. Does anybody know what this is? Have you ever seen something as beautiful as that? This is very much like a Zeppelin fruit is probably the best way to describe it. It's very, very much like a papaya, but it's not. Well, technically it's not anyway. This is a babaco and it's one of probably 25, 30 fruit at the moment that are on my babaco trees at home. And they are such prolific flowering plant, uh, fruiting plant, uh, and, and certainly as far as fruit goes, it's hard to get anything, I think, more exotic than this. Interestingly, it's got this amazing aroma to it. And when you smell it, you'll get the essence of aniseed coming through. But when you cut it open, the flesh of this plant, it doesn't have any seeds inside, so it's only able to be grown by cutting. Um, but the flesh of this plant is tingly uh, in its taste sensation. It's very much almost like sherbet, if uh, if I could use that. Or sometimes it's called the champagne fruit because it's got the bubbles, bubbly kind of a texture or effect of champagne. This, at this stage, picked fresh like this with a beautiful aroma literally coming through the skin now. This is fantastic with vanilla ice cream and what a great summer treat it would be. Really heralds the start of summer and the tropics and the warm conditions. So, um, yeah, there you go. Babaco, you can get it in your local garden centre. You can also buy it online. 
uh, through one of our, our friends, the online retailers. People like Garden Express will keep their eye out for, for you. I know um, specialist fruit um, nurseries like Dailies do sell them. So uh, Google it, Babaco, one you should be growing at home. Wow, that's a lot of talking, isn't it? You've been listening to me uh, for a long period of time and our guests. I hope you've enjoyed today's show. We will be back next Friday and uh, we've, of course, we've got the Garden Gurus uh, this weekend coming up. I should mention that uh, our prize winners, and please send us your, send us a private message with your uh, email address, uh, sorry, with your mail address. And what we will do is we'll post your prize packs out, which is some uh, packets of seeds from the guys at Mr. Fothergills. Our winners... Drum roll, Natalie from Sydney, Denise from the Hunter Valley, Bernard from Victoria, Lindy from Brisbane, and Ari from Perth. You'll all be getting some Mr. Fothergill seeds to plant out in your garden. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, this is uh, this is the end of our session. We will be back next week. The Garden Gurus, of course, is right across the country tomorrow with our latest episode. We're coming to the end of the series now. We've only got a few more, so make sure you tune in and get to see Naughty Nige at his best. And uh, we've got some great contributions from Bonnie and, and Nev and, of course, Sue. Uh, some really good stories, actually. You'll really enjoy them. If you want to listen back to today's podcast or maybe you missed it and you want to um, have a look at the live stream, you can check it out via Spotify, Apple Podcast and Podbean. They are always that you can watch this again uh, when you want. It's a great thing about it. Thanks, The Garden Guru is live. We'll be back at 12 p.m. Australian Eastern Standard Daylight Time next Friday, as long as Facebook lets us. I'm Trevor Cochran. Look forward to seeing you then. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for your patience. The Garden Gurus is back on your screens this weekend. Tune in to 9 and 9 HD this Saturday at 4.30 p.m. across all states. And if you'd like to catch up on the previous episode, tune into Nine Life this Saturday at 5 p.m. When in doubt, make sure you check your local TV guide. I got my rig and I'm ready to go.